0: The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane. This week we talk to the Australian writer Christos Cholkas, the author of bestseller The Slap, about his new novel Damascus, which follows the life of St. Paul in the aftermath of the crucifixion. And later in the show we'll be talking to the historian Tom Holland about the lasting influence of Christianity. Christus Tsiolkas was a well-respected figure in Australia's literary scene with dark, funny and often brutal novels like Dead Europe and Loaded. His 2008 novel The Slap, set in Australian suburbia and following the fallout after a man hits a child who is not his own, made him a worldwide bestseller. His new book Damascus is very different. Set at the birth of Christianity, it follows the life of St Paul as the battle to create the definitive account of Christ's life becomes increasingly violent. When he came into the studio to speak with Sean, Christos began by reading the opening pages.
1: The world is in darkness. The hood the guards have placed over her head scratches at her cheeks and neck. She takes fleeting comfort from the smell of the greasy fibre, the odours of sheep and goat. From her first memory, their bleeding was part of her life. They were her companions during the day and over countless nights when she joined them in their rough stable to escape the drunken violence of her father and her brothers and then that of her husband. The warm bodies of the goats had been her solace and her bed. They had been her work and her friends. She also recognises another smell, far more noxious, fear. How many others has this hood covered? The stink of their terror is soaked through the fibres. With every hoarse breath, she too releases the acrid taint of fear. She must not let them know her dread. She prays. Our Lord is a shepherd. He is not a king or a priest or a master, our Lord is a shepherd. With every silent repetition of that prayer, the demon that is fear subsides. She falls into calmness. The rope that binds the call is loosened and a tremor of light battles with the darkness. The hood is snatched off her and the overwhelming sunlight burns her eyes. The world is white, blinding, terrifying white. At first there is only that brilliance of light. Then she discerns the shadows. And as those shadows take form, she sees that she is in the centre of a circle. Surrounding her are bearded men, each one holding a rock. As her eyes adjust to the day, she can see the sun flaring off the wall of the sacred city in the distance. Then she sees crows and vultures wheeling above her. They are in a gully. It is a cursed ground. And with that thought, fear reclaims her. On this ground she will die. Piss runs down her legs, darkens her smock, streams onto the stony ground. Her hands are still tied behind her back so she cannot cover her shame. She drops to a crouch.
2: Christos Cholkus, welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast.
1: An absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you, (laughs) Sean.
2: When I heard about your book, uh, your new book, Damascus, when I first received a copy, I was also sent a letter written by you. And I'm really glad that I read it first (laughs) before I started the novel. Sometimes I sort of discard the things that come with books, but I, I made sure to read this. And it so completely informed my reading of this novel, but also quite a lot of your other works as well, that I'm really, really thankful that I did. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) So if you wouldn't mind, because I think it would be really great for readers if they they possibly haven't read Damascus yet, but maybe they've read The Slap or maybe even uh, Dead Europe. Um, Could you just sort of talk about your relationship with religion and uh, particularly uh, St. Paul?
1: Look, uh, I I grew up uh, in the Greek Orthodox faith. Mm. Uh, So... Uh, that 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 was my early experience of 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 religion, and the, it was as much culture as it was religion like did i I believed in God, but God was this uh, presence that lived in the sky It was a very you know that very childlike um, imagining of what of, of what God is anyway, to cut to the chase, <laughs> uh, when I was thirteen, we moved from uh, I grew up in Melbourne in a very at that time very migrant community and my parents uh, moved out out of the inner city to a place that was a shock to me it was very very Anglo yeah. and uh, I I'd, I'd grown up thinking that Australians spoke Greek <laughs> you know that was <laughs> uh, so I was very lonely in that transition that was in in year 8 and also it, it 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 was at the time when I realized that that my sexuality was something that was forbidden. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I, and it was a really lovely young woman my age who was the first person who showed me friendship and she was part of an evangelical Christian community and she was my first friend at this school where I was feeling quite lonely and for a period I became a Christian and part of that was my wanting to make a bargain with God. If you remove my homosexuality I will be a good Christian, I will do Everything possible mm. to be faithful to what I thought was uh, inviolable uh, scripture yeah and i couldn't i, I, I just couldn 't reconcile that battle and, and sean it was a, it was a battle i've been when I talk about it, I mean this quite seriously, you know you because I was a thirteen year old boy, I would be masturbating in bed at night, and then after I came so shocked and angry and disgusted with myself that I would scratch myself to let the demons out. That's how I felt it. So I was caught up in this battle and my first encounter with St. Paul, and Paul is the, the main character of, of Damascus. My first encounter with him was in Corinthians, where he, he writes that amongst a, a whole long list, being homosexual will deny you God's love. Mm-hmm. After about a year and a half of this struggle, I just got up from a Bible reading and when I don't believe anymore. And it was an absolute relief. Mm. I was like, I, 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 can, I could not reconcile God and my body. Yeah. And I thought I would never, ever think about religion again. <laughs> and <laughs> then uh, in my late 20s, I went through a period which is, we all experience of another form of despair. But this one was where I had failed myself. I, I failed someone I loved really deeply and I was working in the city, this is in Melbourne and across the street from my work was a little uniting church and you know I still to this day don't know what what it was. I just walked into the church and just fell into prayer and I hadn't prayed for it would have been over 10 years at at that point and just howled and it was such a relief to pray and in front of me was a New Testament and I picked it up I'd always loved the the Gospel of matthew, mm-hmm. so i I read that and then I started reading paul and the, the um, astounding thing about paul as is we can still hear his voice we've got we, we've actually got his letters and and this time I didn't find a man saying that you are going to be denied God's love. I actually found someone who was writing about what it is to be human and how do you deal with the despair I was experiencing. I found great solace in his work. And so that was a long time ago, but I think the the germ of this book came from those two experiences and and trying to make a reconciliation between that first version of Paul and the Paul that that gave me hope Mm. as as a young adult. The other thing I I need to say, because it is important, is, you know, for my parents... Greek working class immigrants to a country where they didn't know the language, they didn't know the culture. My coming out as gay was a a huge shock for them. And I'm absolutely fortunate that they never stopped extending their love to to me. But it took a long, long time. And some years ago, now that my mum and I could be truly adult about our relationship, I actually asked her the question of how... How did she cope? Because I think it, she doesn't have family in Australia. She uh, she doesn't have the language. Mm. And she told me she, had, she herself had gone through a certain despair of wondering could she live what, yeah. with the, the shame because that's, that's what happens in those communities. Um, the shame can be terrifying. And she said that she actually found solace from reading Paul. Mm-hmm. And I said, what did you discover in Paul? And she said that God loves my son. Mm. And I think that, too, is part of what has brought me to writing Damascus. Because even though I'm no, I'm no longer a Christian, it, this book is is a way of kind of honouring something about the ethical that I definitely have got from Christianity. Mm. But I think the ethical questions, whatever our faith tradition, whether we're atheist or whether we're agnostic or, or, or whether we do have religious faith, that, 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 that questioning of what it is to to live an ethical life in the world is an important (laughs) question and if you don't understand it if you don't understand the history of where these concepts like justice like universal love come from
2: Mm. i mean i I read a quote from you i think from i think it was like 2014 and uh, you, you you said if I were to teach creative writing today, I'd say <laughs> to students, don't write anything until you've had time to read Homer and the Bible, and uh, what you were saying. I, think no. I also said
1: Shakespeare. Oh, and Shakespeare.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's probably it's a pretty good set, <laughs> but I was sort of wondering about the Bible in particular. What do you think it is about reading the Bible that that might teach a, a writer? Is is it sheer power of storytelling, or is it is it something else? Is it to do with language?
1: When I have gone into creative writing um, classes. Uh, what you want to talk about is, firstly, what the discipline is to be a writer. You know, because there is a sort it's it's a work. It's, it's it's a particular dedication you have to do. Just the mechanics of, of of doing that, but it's also, you know, the metaphor I use is writing is this long apprenticeship. It never stops. And what are the tools that you have in this craft? They are words. And we're speaking in English. The the writing I do is in the English language. All right. So where do you learn? Part of what the English language is, you go back to the Bible. You actually go back to Shakespeare, and you know it's that astonishing thing when you see production of Hamlet that you go, my God, this play has given us so many of the the phrases and the words that we, we and ideas that we use now in mm. 2020. It, it's it's there. The Bible for me is a collection of some of. I mean, there's really boring bits, right? <laughs> of course, but there's also some of the greatest works. That are part of a common human heritage. Mm. Like, so in the Jew- Jewish Bible, from Genesis to Exodus, you have some of the most exciting stories, from the Garden of Eden to Noah and the Flood to the Tower of Babel to the suffering of the slave Jewish slaves and they're, and their coming to the Promised Land. It's all there. You know, they're, they're those stories. In the Book of Job, written three thousand years ago, well, two and a half thousand years ago, maybe longer, you have the first existential. <laughs> lament mm. I mean what does it mean to be human right is and then in the New Testament in the Christian Testament you've got Paul's letters and you know I love his letters but you've also got the Gospels that are are part of again I think our human heritage of a um, guide of how what it means to be in the world the other thing was realising there's so much beautiful writing that comes from the ancient world but are not the words of the majority of people and the majority of people who lived were slaves yeah And the majority of people who lived were poor people. They didn't write themselves into history, so I had to imagine their lives. And again, it doesn't matter what your faith tradition is, and it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not. What is profoundly moving about Christianity, you take the crucifix so for granted, but when you really have to think through what it is, the worst and ugliest punishment that the Roman state envisaged. How they signified that you, any, anyone listening to this, was the most abject and the most ugly and the most unwanted of, of, of humans, in fact, not even human, was to crucify you, yeah. to, to break your body, to violate your body. It was the most shameful thing they could do. And what this new faith that emerged out of the Middle East said was, that's where you find God. You don't find God in the noble's house. You don't find God amongst the rich and the wealthy. You actually find God in the most abject presence. And so the language is violent. Mm. The language is harsh because that's the world that these people were living in. And I, I just wanted to be faithful to that.
2: Yeah. That's really interesting that you brought up language because actually language is something I've I've really always wanted to uh, actually talk to you about because language is something that always gets brought up when your your books are discussed or reviewed <laughs> and it, often it's in relation to profanity but it, it's more that I think that there's a, there is a frankness to your writing there's a certain brutal edge to some of your writing There's a lot of scenes in Damascus that are really brutal and obviously can make complete sense in terms of the the historical context. But that wider question about brutality and um, the frankness of your language, I was wondering whether perhaps a certain amount of ugliness in writing allows for a certain amount of beauty on the other side.
1: In one very clear and obvious way, you write, every writer has a voice. I mean, what do you want when you open a book, right? is to actually hear a voice that you've never heard before, right? And, and that's the most astonishing thing that can happen. That's when you fall in love with writing mm-hmm. again, and you fall in love with, you know, it's when you, you... It's not about the story necessarily, right? It's not about the character. It's actually about hearing a voice that you've never heard before, right? That is what keeps me going as a reader. So something in my voice, whatever it is, comes with a certain visceral energy, it's so hard how do you talk about yourself
2: right. okay. you're doing a good job <laughs> okay. visceral's the right word for
1: sure you know we're talking about creative writing classes before the i have said to you know young writers when i'm talking with them you have five senses use all those senses right it's not only your sight it's what you hear it's what you smell it's what you touch i mean bring that into your writing that's what i want to do with the writing i think that there is also an element of the question of class that comes into how we write So whatever my life is now, I came from a world where directness was absolutely important in how you communicated. I grew up in also, and that was part of the working class world I I grew up with, where for the first four years of my life i only spoke greek and that's why i thought that greek was the language you know it was the the official language of of, of australia <laughs> and then i went to school and i learned that no it was english so i had to master a new language but still when i, I came home the language i had to or well, needed to speak in to my parents with was greek so that was a really long struggle when i was a young kid because you don't you don't really necessarily understand why it is so difficult to communicate because you're learning concepts in English and then having to translate them in this, in this other language. So in that work of translation, again, directness comes into it. Uh, a certain straightforwardness, uh, a certain uh, slang, a certain way of, of speaking is, is part of the language I grew up with and the language that I'm fascinated in and the language that I want to use as a writer.
2: I mean, it was interesting before you brought up Australia because actually I wanted to ask you, because Australia is nowhere to be seen in, in Damascus. I, uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: well, it <laughs> didn't sort of, exist. No, um, <laughs> as, a, as a modern, as what as we know, state, Australia yeah, now.
2: Yeah. And it's been, it's sort of very present in a lot of your books and uh, like particularly I was thinking about Barracuda and maybe because it came after the slap and so there was, there was a pretty big, global release for it and so I interviewed Helen Garner a couple years ago Oh, she's amazing everyone that's listening to this you have to go read some Helen Garner because she's just incredible and she's not appreciated as much as she should be outside of Australia I remembered she'd said the quote was I never wanted to write about Australia as a spectacle for people elsewhere and it struck me that that could be possibly something that a lot of Australians struggle with particularly after they've had like a global success like The Slap. And I was wondering how you'd feel about that statement, about not wanting to make it a spectacle for for the rest of the world.
1: You write about, you know, when I I wrote The Slap, I didn't think about what people knew about Melbourne or Australia. I just wanted to write a story that fascinated me about changing morality (laughs) and changing codes of behaviour and actually changing class system, Mm -hmm. a class system that for for a long time had been anglo in my country, and now what had many different faces and gu- guises. What does it mean when people step into the middle class mm-hmm. <laughs> from the working class world? You just have to write the story you want it to write. I think that's the important thing there's a long time been this notion of the cultural cringe in mm-hmm. i mean in Australia. I think for myself and my generation and now a younger generation because we don't necessarily come from mm. like from Britain, you know that's not our heritage we don't have necessarily have this sense of that's who we have to write for maybe yeah. earlier generations had that that that's that's just not part of my experience yeah. and that's quite liberating i don't know any australian writer who's really at the moment thinking about how their work is going to be read elsewhere the big question big moral political question yeah. as, an, as a writer from australia at the moment is Indigenous history and where you stand in relationship to that mm-hmm. and what is the notion of Australia that you are communicating in your in your work. The greatest uh, thing that is happening in Australian letters at the moment is that you have this astonishing wealth of Indigenous writing. Mm. Right. So that's, that's what you're thinking of yeah. <laughs> as an Australian at the moment as a, and as a white fellow Australian that's... That's more an issue. Whereas I don't pick up a, a novel by a Scottish writer and go, "What is this version of Scotland?" I'm yeah. just I'm picking up the book and wanting to hear, as I said, a voice that I've never heard before. Yeah. where it comes from isn't that that important to me.
2: One last question before before we have to wrap up. I wanted to know whether you'd had much feedback from Christian readers about this, just because particularly you know you've taken some sort of a, a quite apocryphal beliefs and myths around Jesus as a as a figure. And you've made your own interpretations on on certain things and I was wondering whether any Christians had, had reacted at all.
1: The yeah. most pleasurable aspect of, of, of what's been happening over the last few months, because the, the novel was released in in Australia in November, has been the conversation I've had with Christians. Mm. You know, the thing that I fear most is fundamentalists. I fear secular fundamentalists as much as I fear re- religious fundamentalists. If you, you most of the Christians who have spoken to me about the book and I, I you know I had I was on a panel with three Anglican ministers <laughs> about a month ago and it was it was terrific to be able to be there and to actually discuss history and discuss theology and discuss what can fiction do that is different to what non-fiction can do when it comes to this uh, these ideas I think there are people of good faith who have been struggling with the meaning of Christianity for a long time now and people will say uh, you've created this figure Thomas who is Jesus's twin that may not be theologically sound but at the same time you are talking with Christians who also know that there is a gospel of Thomas that was eliminated in the canonical Bible but that actually speaks to another possibility that there was for Christianity and that is one in which there wasn't a resurrection mm-hmm. so what would it have meant if you had a faith that didn't believe in the resurrected Christ that said actually there is no kingdom to come. The kingdom is here in this world. Mm. That's why I've created the figure of Thomas. And it's there subtly in the canonical Bible, in the in in the Gospel of John. You know, we have the figure of doubting Thomas. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't believe that Christ has been resurrected until he puts you know, he actually puts his finger in the hole, in the body, where the nails went in. That isn't a literal truth. And most Christians know that what is being hinted at in that gospel is that there was another, another way Christianity could have gone. It's saying that these early Christians who had another idea of what the life and teachings and death of this prophet that came out of Judea 2,000 years ago meant. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm grappling with this book, is to, to say there are various versions of Christianity. It is not frightening. It's actually, I think, invigorating and liberating to be able to, to, to understand that history.
2: Christos, thank you so much for coming
1: on the podcast. An absolute pleasure. Thank (laughs) you.
2: That
0: was Christos Cholkas. Damascus is published by Atlantic Books. After the break, we'll be talking to the historian Tom Holland about his book, Dominion, which investigates why Christianity has had such a lasting influence over 2,000 years of Western history. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Tom Holland is used to squaring up to mighty subjects. In a career that encompasses books, television and radio, he has confronted the fall of the classical world, the rise of Islam and the making of England. His latest book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, or, if you're in the US, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, is big history framed around a simple, single question – how has a cult inspired by the execution of an obscure criminal in a long-vanished empire come to exercise such a transformative and enduring influence on the world? Welcome, Tom. Thank you very
3: much. So, how has it? That, that is uh, the topic of my quite lengthy book, so I will try and give you a, a, a precy. Essentially, Christianity, if you imagine the Roman Empire as a kind of petri dish in which there are various ingredients bubbling away. So Jewish scripture and tradition, um, Greek philosophy, Persian dualism, and indeed the, the the very Roman idea of a kind of universal order. All these elements are bubbling away and then some kind of strange chemical reaction occurs which fuses them all together. A- and this reaction is in some way the belief that this obscure criminal, Jesus rose from the dead and is in some strange way a part of the one creator God of Israel who has fashioned all the earth as well. The genius initiative really is that the Jewish inheritance, the Jewish tradition of this kind of loving God who has fashioned all the world, is made palatable not just for Jews but for everybody And that kind of universalizes it. There's a kind of paradox in Christianity that it's it's a religion of, of love. It's a religion that gives the poorest, lowest, humblest, most persecuted people the assurance that the one creator God loves them. And yet the obverse of that is, well, what do you do with people who don't accept this universal message of love? And in a sense, the, the genius of Christianity has been precisely that it's been able to, to kind of spread and mutate entirely around the world to the degree that I think that enormous amounts of, of what we today take for granted would be unthinkable without Christianity and in a way are Christian heresies.
0: You make a huge claim don't you? you you say to live in a western country is to live in a world still utterly saturated with christian concepts and assumptions this is no less true for jews and muslims than it is for catholics and protestants i.e it's more saturating than any other well religion. i mean
3: I, for, for instance if you use the word religion if you use the word secular you are using words that have emerged from Christian history. And Christian theology, and they're a, 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 for a hedged about with, with all kinds of Christian significations. And what that means for people from different traditions is that if they live in a western country and they're told you have freedom of religion it means that they have to kind of shape and mold their traditions into the form of something that resembles what christians traditionally have understood by religions so if you look at the way that jews in the early 19th century with establishment of of the french republic and then kind of other states around europe on the same model jews get told you can have citizenship But to do so, you have to accept that you belong not to a people, not to the nation of Israel, but to a religion called Judaism. And the word Judaism is a very... Ancient one in Christian discourse, it's one that originates in the 2nd century AD, but no Jew uses that word, that concept, until the 19th century. So what you see over the course of the 19th century in both Reform and Orthodox Judaism is essentially an attempt to approximate to something that kind of resembling Protestantism. And the same kind of weathering pressures have been brought to bear on Muslims who've moved to what was formerly Christendom after the Second World War, Muslims are told, yes, you have freedom of religion. But traditionally, Muslims have not thought of what Christians have thought of as Islam as being uh, anything that approximates to, to, to what Christians today think of as a religion. And I think that that is, is a huge part of the stresses that exist between Islam and secularism. Secularism is not culturally neutral. Secularism is bred of Christianity and so therefore it it imposes far greater strains on on Muslims to accommodate to it than it does on Christians.
0: So we are partly dependent for this extraordinary behemoth that strides our history and our culture we have St Paul to thank for it don't we who's one well, of I the first I got a Christian great say ultimately us. you have Jesus <laughs> <laughs> to thank for it
3: but, but Paul is the earliest source we have for it his letters are earlier than, than, than any of the gospel accounts of, of Jesus' life or sayings and so therefore if you want to know about the beginnings of Christianity you, know, you go back to the earliest sources and, and those are Paul's letters, of which seven are generally accepted to have been absolutely written by Paul himself. They don't fill a huge amount of space, they, they're quite short, um, some are longer than others, but almost every line is like a kind of acorn from which incredible oaks have sprung. And I can't think of any other collection of texts that have had a more seismic or fundamental influence on the development of what we would now call the West. I mean, they are so full of implication, so full of kind of startling recalibrations of what Jews, Greeks, Romans had taken for granted, that to read them is to kind of be in the presence of the beginnings of something enormous.
0: So Christos has obviously, as we've just heard in that interview, has taken a sort of quite a low down and dirty approach to him.
2: Christos has a very personal relationship with St. Paul in particular in his own life and, and growing up uh, Greek Orthodox. But I'd be interested to know what your impression, because obviously Christos has gone and done his research and then written a novel about St. Paul. In your own research, do you, do you ever really get a sense of the man from the letters?
3: Yeah, the letters, and it's very important to, to the way in which Christianity evolves along different tram lines to those of, of, of Judaism or Islam is that Paul's fundamental message is that the original covenant, the law, the Torah, which was given to Moses, is no longer really necessary because now with the new covenant, that, which has been hailed by the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, there is a new covenant that is is, is is written on the heart. Therefore, you don't need a great body of written law. What you need is to look into your own heart and to read God's law there. And this is the message that that, that Paul is is. Propagating often, it seems, in, in tension with many other Christian preachers. And the word that he reaches for to describe this, this law that is written on the heart, it's such a kind of novel idea. It's so alien to Jewish tradition that he reaches for a tradition from, from Greek Stoicism, Greek philosophy. And the Stoics believe that there is a spark of the divine manifest throughout the entire world and that it's manifest in human beings. And it's what they call synodasis conscience. So Paul is foregrounding conscience. So actually his personal take on Jesus is kind of part of his message. And so these letters are not lists of what you can and can't do specifically, although they often are. But they are Paul's personal take on what you can and can't do. Paul is looking into his own heart and giving you his own sense. And so, therefore, a sense of his personality is absolutely imminent within them. You you, you get that very strongly. There are points where he, he loses his temper. There are points where he makes... He makes jokes. There are points where he says, you know, I wish that I was writing this myself. I'd do it in very kind of large capitals. You get a very, very vivid sense of him as as, as a personality. And I think that, that that, of course, has always been the, the lure for, for novelists and dramatists is that you get just enough to want to know more. But it, you can't know a lot of what you want to know just from the letters. <laughs> and then there's the the standing temptation of Acts of the Apostles written several decades later, which does give you more But because it's that much later, and because by that point, it's kind of arguing points that Christians need to believe, you can't entirely trust it. So you're kind of torn between thinking, oh, I'd love to know more and thinking, well, I've just got to accept that I will never know.
0: So now this book, it's it's absolutely full of characters. I mean, we made it sound quite cerebral just because of the way we... The (laughs) subjects we've been talking about. And one of them, one of my favourites, is this character I didn't know at all called Oregon. I was thinking that maybe now that people have exhausted Jesus and St. Paul and Thomas and Moses and Mary, Column Toy Bean notably and Naomi the yeah, yeah, wonderful time. novel Oregon might be the, the one that everybody's been waiting for that nobody's really dealt with
3: uh, Oregon is an amazing figure I completely agree I mean one of the things I didn't put in the book uh, uh, because I, I didn't want to distract from from what I wanted to focus on is that he's meant to have castrated himself that, that's kind oh. of that's the shocking detail that I'm sure a novelist would go straight in I didn't because actually what, what's fascinating about Oregon is that he is the first great intellectual to adopt Christianity up until that point uh, philosophers have looked down on it as a, a cult of, of peasants and scullery maids. Oregon, who was born in Alexandria, the great intellectual capital of the ancient world. In the
0: third century.
3: Third century. He is the son of Christians, but raised in the, the philosophical traditions of, of the great library, the museum, all the, the philosophical inheritance of ancient Greece, which he, 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 he adores and absolutely regards as something fit for Christians to study. Um, he is Also uh, greatly devoted to the Jews and the Jews also live in Alexandria and he studies Hebrew. Although it's often said that Alexandria is a melting pot, it wasn't really. Uh, Greeks and Jews led very separate lives but but Oregon is a kind of one-man melting pot and he fuses these Greek and Jewish traditions to create what will become Christian theology, the kind of philosophical attempt to understand how and why and what Christ is basically. But he never forgets that no matter how intellectual you may be Christ came for everyone and he did come for the scullery maid and he did come for the beggar and he did come for the illiterate person who may know nothing about philosophy and there's kind of wonderful passage where he, he, Oregon says you know at the end of a very very kind of abstruse platonic passage because, but you know all of this said I, I sit back and I think of the fact that God was born of a woman and cried for milk And to be honest, I'm lost for words. Mm -hmm. I'm unable to explain it. And I share in the universal sense of astonishment at this thought. And it's a kind of beautiful, beautiful passage where he's essentially saying, you know, I'm a very clever guy. I've come up with all this amazing philosophy. But at the end of the day, the wonder of this is something that I and a scullery maid completely share. And having said that, he is wonderfully. Rich as a writer as well as a philosopher, you say about a novelist, reading him, I'm often th- thought of a short story writer, Borges, because he, he loves kind of games that, that that revolve around libraries or mysteries or labyrinths. And he has one beautiful account of, um, of the Bible, which has always stuck with me ever since I read it, where he says that, that, that the Bible is like a mansion full of many rooms and they're all locked so he's acknowledging the fact that you know the, the books in the bible they're full of mystery they're full of weird stuff they're full of things that that may to the surface appear quite odd but he says but actually the keys to these rooms are scattered all around the mansion but in different rooms and you need to find them so this kind of wonderful idea of a Borgesian librarian going around this mansion trying to find the keys and fitting them it's wonderful that this is written by somebody who lives in the home of the greatest library of antiquity
0: but also the the openness to the idea of, of the servant being an equal to the philosopher is, it sort of bears out your other, one of your other central theses, which is that liberal humanism is a footnote to the Bible.
3: Yeah, basically, I mean, the, the, the thing about, about Greek philosophy is that it's essentially an elite practice. You know, you have to be very rich. It's like going to Harvard Business School. You know, I mean, it's that that level. The, the genius of Christianity is that it's able to, to repackage um, much uh, it, the, the, that is moving and powerful within Greek philosophy and make, accommodate it to, to everybody. So if Paul, going back to Paul, I mean, he, he says there is no Greek or Jew in Christ. It's a kind of universalizing of the God of Israel. But he also says there is no slave or free, high or low, educated or not educated, all are one in Christ. And indeed he says no man or woman as well. I mean, I think he's kind of subliminally aware of just how radical an idea that is. He doesn't push it far enough to say, well, we should abolish slavery. I mean, no nowhere says that. He 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 can't decide whether women should be allowed to speak publicly. I mean he kind of swings around that. But when I say that that his lines, his sayings are like acorns, you can see that those are acorns from which great oaks will ultimately come. And when people want to campaign to abolish slavery, that line is there and when people want to argue the case that men and women have a fundamental equality that line is there and I would say that in light of say the Me Too movement the power of the Me Too movement depends on men being willing to accept it as well as women and you have to ask yourself well why are men ready to accept that? And I think that the, the reason why men are fundamentally ready to accept that is due to the deep, deep cultural weathering that comes not from Greece, not from Rome, but from the, the, the Christian tradition.
0: Tom, so much to think about there. Thank you very much.
3: <laughs> Thank you.
0: And that's all for this week. Thanks to Christos Choukas and Tom Holland. Damascus is published by Atlantic in the UK and Allen and Unwin in the US. And Dominion is published by Little Brown in the UK and Basic Books in the US. Next week we'll be talking to the Northern Irish writer Glenn Patterson about his latest novel, which finds the ghosts of the past refusing to go quietly in a rapidly renewing Belfast. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or on the podcast page. And you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. I'm Ishaan Kane. And our producer, Ian Chambers. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.